Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners. Welcome to New Books and Popular Culture, a channel on the New Books Network. This is Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Amanda Ann Klein, author of Millennials Killed the Video Star, MTV's Transition to Reality Programming, published by Duke University Press in 2021. In Millennials Killed the Video Star, Amanda Klein examines the historical, cultural, and industrial factors leading to MTV's shift away from music videos to reality programming in the early 2000s and 2010s. Drawing on interviews with industry workers from programs such as The Real World and Teen Mom, Klein demonstrates how MTV generated a coherent discourse on youth and identity by intentionally leveraging stereotypes about race, ethnicity, gender, and class. Klein explores how this production cycle, which showcased a variety of ways of being in the world, has played a role in identity construction in contemporary youth culture, ultimately shaping the ways in which millennial audiences of the 2000s thought about, talked about, and embraced a variety of identities. So our guest, Dr. Amanda Ann Klein, is Associate Professor in the Department of English at East Carolina University. So welcome, Dr. Klein. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we dive into the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Wow. Well, um, (laughs) I have been a professor here at ECU for about 14 years, which seems crazy. Um, I got some chickens during the pandemic. I enjoy them very much. So that's been very fun. Uh, I teach film and media studies within an English department. Uh, but uh, my work has also, as as this book, is uh, focused on TV studies. My first book was on film and specifically the subject of genre and genre theory. So kind of jump around a little bit. That's really cool. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. We, in music studies, also deal a lot with, you know, genre and genre theory. So common ground. Um, and, you know, Continuing with a little bit of background here, can you tell us a little bit about what the process of working on this book was like? How did you come to, you know, in this journey, settle on this topic? Yeah, it's, I I think for most people uh, with academic books, it is a a fairly long process. So, you know, with my, (laughs) with my first book, it had been my dissertation. So a lot of that work had been done, you know, it was very structured and I had three different professors reading and editing and giving me suggestions. But with your second book, you're sort of, you know, out on your own. And so for me, it more started as um, some articles I had been writing. Uh, I'd been very interested in series like The Hills and Laguna Beach. And so I published an article in 2009 about 
the hills and how storylines were both communicated on the show, but then also would appear in the tabloids uh, when the show was off the air. So it was a way to kind of keep fans engaged and have them interacting between these two different platforms. Uh, and and in that way, of course, tabloids and, and reality TV have always had this very uh, synergistic relationship. So that was kind of my my first scholarly inquiry into the subject. And then over the years, you know, I had other projects. I was, you know, finishing up my, turning my dissertation into a book. And, um, but then I kept writing about these topics. So I'd written a little bit about Jersey Shore and Teen Mom. And then eventually I was like, okay, maybe I should put this all together and see, you know, what it is that MTV's doing and, and what happens when you think about all of these series together um, as a coherent production cycle, as opposed to just writing about the hills or thinking about Jersey Shore. But there's something that happens when you think about all of them together, you know, which which is the genre studies lens in me that, that I'm using there. So, yeah, it all came together. And we'll come back to that point, too, about kind of looking at it as a whole, you know, bird's eye kind of view. I wanted to ask, also ask you as well, did you grow up watching MTV? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I am I was born in 1976. I know it seems hard to believe with my youthful my youthful voice. Uh, but uh yeah, I mean I remember when MTV premiered uh because I had an older brother. So he was very excited and we watched, you know, the launch uh and were very excited. It was on all the time. It was sort of ambient television, um, you know, because of course this was back before, you know, obviously the internet and everything else. And so uh, first of all, to have cable was, was very exciting. Um, and then uh, MTV was on all the time. It was 24 hours a day. You didn't really need to pay attention to it because it was just music videos. Um, so, you know, it really was this background for a lot of my youth kind of like hanging out in the den uh, with friends or, you know, with relatives. So yeah, I absolutely um, was a huge MTV fan um, and continue to watch it as as it's evolved, of course. That's cool. I'm always interested, like from a personal basis, what brings people to, you know, their topics. So I just was curious. Um, and shifting gears back to a point you just made sort of um, that you get at in the introduction, you say that, quotes millennials killed the video star offers a major intervention into discussions of MTV's prolific output of reality programming created for millennial youth audiences, and that it is the first book to examine the successful group of reality TV series as a coherent production cycle. So like you were just getting at a few minutes ago, what do you think sets your book apart from other research on MTV shows by looking at it as, you know, the cycle? Well, so if you would go and look for scholarship written about MTV, it is mostly concentrated on its years as a music video channel, because obviously that's a very rich uh, area of study. And there's a lot to talk about and kind of, you know, how music videos make meaning and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a great book called um, I Want My MTV, The Uncensored Story of the Music Video Revolution, which is kind of an oral history uh, collection of interviews. Uh, and then um, Jack Banks actually wrote a really great book called Monopoly Television, MTV's Quest to Control the Music. Uh, but again, these really stop before you hit its focus on reality TV. So there isn't anything out there that talks about the reality shows. Um, now, there's been, you know, lots of scholarship indiv on individual, you know, TV shows, uh, 
by themselves or as articles. But yeah, this no one has kind of brought them all together. And so the the purpose of this book was to see, you know, not only why MTV stopped playing music videos, why has it become, you know, why did they drop the music from music television? Uh, but also, you know, what what was what was MTV trying to do with its audience? What did it see in its audience that made them create this kind of content? And so if you're looking at more than one show, you can start to see a pattern there. It's not just a one-off, you know, there's there's a strategy there. So Yeah. And I think that definitely with the way you kind of go through the chronology of it shows through like the through lines, the trends, the themes. I think you definitely get that sense um, from cover to cover of the book. So I thought it was really neat how you thought through all that um, from that level and how it came across. Um, And going back to the audience's point that you made too, you know, in chapter one, you present this history you know, first from that 1981 point to 2004 as a way to, quote, contextualize MTV's understanding of youth audiences of the 1980s, the so-called Generation X, versus its understanding of audiences of the 2000s, the so-called millennials, end quote. So how did this programming at that time reflect youth culture of these two generations? So when MTV premieres, it is... It's not so much responding to what an audience was asking for. It was an oppor- a business opportunity. So, you know, cable was uh, kind of a new technology. More and more cities had uh, access to cable. So, you know, if you were looking to cash in on that, then, you know, you would say, okay, what what kind of cable channel do I want? And, and uh what kind of audiences would want this content? And so for MTV, the idea was um, there when music producers uh, released an album, they would often make like a, a music video for one of the singles. And those would be played in, you know, Sam Goody or The Wall. I don't even know if those words make sense to you. Those were those were record stores. Um, oh, okay. No, yeah, see, I'm glad I, <laughs> I'm glad I explained that. Um, so you'd go into shop for your CDs or cassettes um, and there would be, you know, a screen and they might be playing, you know, a Duran Duran video or something like that. But that was that was the use for the for these, you know, music videos. And so um, MTV was basically founded on the idea that they had free content. Uh, because, you know, the the records, uh, the record producers, they had no other use for these videos. So they were like, yeah, sure, free promotions for our artists. So that was, you know, so it was less about, oh boy, you know, today's youth are really looking for music videos. It was more that, you know, this is, this is a great business opportunity. It's, you know, low cost. Um, and, you know, of course that happened to work very well for teenagers who were watching TV at the time, because, you know, that's what we do. We sit around, we, we listen to music. Um, and of course, you know, rock and roll and pop music is always about, you know, this is what's hip and cool right now. And that's what, you know, youth audiences are always chasing. So, so it kind of all came together, I think, for MTV in the early 80s. So that's, that's for Gen X. It's very different, of course, when we get to the reality TV. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And that is quite a shift, you know, during that time. Um, 
And you kind of get into another turning point, right? In chapter two, turning gears towards the 1990s iteration of the real world, saying that, quote, it popularized the format of first-person confessional reality TV and set the stage for the fascination with and normalization of the culture of self-branding and self-disclosure that characterizes millennial youth culture and its popular discourses, particularly MTV's reality programming in the 2000s, end quote. So, you know, in this transitional phase, in these earlier seasons of the real world, what do we learn about the subject's identities? You know, especially regarding, as you to talk about quite a bit in this chapter, the white audiences learning about this quote unquote diversity. Yeah. So the real world uh, appears on MTV because they were initially looking for a teen show in the vein of Beverly Hills 90210, which was incredibly popular uh, with young people. And, you know, again, MTV is always looking for different ways to connect with audiences with, with, with the, with the current young audience. And so, you know, they, there, there were lots of different um, non-music video shows that were appearing here and there, like Remote Control and Just Say Julie um, and Stiller had a program, um, but nothing really kind of stuck. They were still really doing the music videos. Uh, but then with the real world, there was this desire to have a, a, a teen show, but it was expensive. It was expensive to get writers. It was expensive to get actors. So the creators, um, Mary Ellis Bunham and Jonathan Murray, decided, well, you know, we can bring together her experience doing soap operas and his experience, um, you know, with documentary and bring them together and make this show, um, you know, without any costs, you know, we just, uh, we're just going to find young people uh, who are interesting. Uh, But the key was, is they had to be different. They had to be different from one another. And so, yeah, so this was the term, um, I had the good fortune to interview him for this book. And he had talked a lot about the the word diversity, uh, and that that was really important. And it was really the engine of the show. Because if you don't have a script, and you don't have um, actors, how do you guarantee that you're going to have conflict and drama, which is why we tune into shows, right? This is why we want to watch something for conflict and drama. So he really felt that having this diverse cast would do that because um, if you stick a bunch of people who have differences into a room, they are going to talk to one another and they're going to argue and they're going to fight. And, you know, according to the producers of the real world, that this would also be a good thing though, because they would learn from each other and they would grow. Um, And, you know, these major gender-based and race-based kind of conversations that were happening at the time uh, could be hashed out on TV uh, for the benefit of the audience. And so you really see that, um, say, in the first season of The Real World, where they they talk very explicitly about race and kind of um, stereotypes of Black people. So, you know, Julie, assuming that Heather's a drug dealer because she has a beeper. Um, Julie thinking that um, Kevin is really mean to her and aggressive, um, you know, as a Black man. Um, so, you know, there's lots of moments like that in the first season. And, you know, if you think back to 1992, what was happening, um, you know, we had had um, the Rodney King beating that was captured on film. Uh, and this is one of the first times that something like that had been caught on film. You know, it had been happening for decades, but it was caught on film. And um, there was this assumption that there would be some kind of justice, uh, that the four LAPD officers who were involved in this would have criminal charges. They would go to jail. 
and they were all acquitted. Um, so that was a really big deal in 1992, and it led to what then became known as the LA riots, right? So um, kind of this chaos and um, you know looting and fires, and and some people died, um, and so the whole country is kind of on the edge of their seats uh, talking about race and racial tension. And then of course, right after that, you have the OJ Simpson trial, which is sort of the redoing of the LAPD trial in some ways. Um, and so, you know, these, these, not, not that, you know, race is ever, never not an important issue in America, but it was really, it was, it was a very vexed time. So yeah. So, so Jonathan Murray puts these people in a room together they they hash things out, um, but ultimately, and I, I'd say this is true of pretty much every season um, where they were still trying to do this. Um, it's never really a lesson for um, the black people or the brown people. It is it is a lesson for for the white people on the show. So they're the ones who are having to learn about other people. So the white um, the white cast member is taken as the default. Uh, and there is an assumption um, that that is the audience as well. And, and it's a correct assumption. MTV targeted uh, white suburban kids. That that was in there. It, that was not like a secret. It was very overt. Um, they felt that was where what their market was. And, you know, they famously didn't play uh, Michael Jackson um, when he was incredibly popular. It had to, it took time for them to realize, yeah, we should, we should probably put Michael Jackson videos on here, right? Um, so... So yeah, so it, uh, the real world, although they they did have these kind of intense conversations, it ultimately was this learning experience for the white cast member who gets to be educated. Um, but you know, no one in the audience who was not white was watching that, thinking, "Aha, <laughs> I've learned something about racism." Right there, they live that. That's their life. Um, so yeah, so you see it um, kind of happen over and over again. Uh, but then eventually they're not very concerned with even having those conversations. So right around um, the uh, the Las Vegas season, uh, you see a strong transition to really just a, a girls gone wild type aesthetic. So, it, uh, you know, it, that was also really, really popular at that time, um, like right around 2000 something. I don't have the, the date in front of me, but uh, yeah. And so the main draw then is drinking heavily, making out, having sex, uh, getting into fights. Not necessarily, though, because of racial difference or because of gender inequity or uh, sexual orientation. It's it's kind of just about like girls gone wild, really. So that's, that's kind of where the real world had gone. But in its first probably eight seasons, um, there was this attempt to kind of have these conversations um, even though, again, they they really did center on white people. Yeah. Do you think I had a couple of questions as you were talking that I thought about? Um, so, in terms of that target audience, is that because you think it would have been primarily white viewers that had cable? Would that be a oh. factor? Yeah. So, I th- that's part of it. So, certainly, they were thinking about which households in America would have had uh, cable. But then another reason, though, why MTV um, came to be is because more and more households were uh, able to have cable. Um, I think MTV, uh, when it was founded, they thought of, well, if we're, we're showcasing music, what kind of music are we showcasing? And they felt that 
rock. Uh, first of all, they saw rock music as white, which is its own problem. But um, that's where they felt their money was. They um, and and it's not surprising. We see this in a lot of um, culture that there's an assumption of a white market and a white audience. Yeah. And then I had another question too. You mentioned kind of in your methodology that you got to interview mm-hmm. folks that were kind of behind the scenes. What was that process like of being able to interview some of these people? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, yeah, I got to talk to um, two real world cast members, both of whom I watched on their seasons. They were great seasons. And it was interesting. They had very different um accounts of their time there. So Mm. um, Irene McGee, who was on the Seattle season, uh, and she's pretty infamous if if you watched the early days of the real world, because she was the cast member who was slapped uh, by someone Uh. else uh, in the face. And then also she left the show. um, And that was very dramatic because people didn't necessarily leave the show. And it was, she was sort of painted as being crazy and unstable. Um, But really what had happened is she was just really frustrated with the setup of the show. She was frustrated with how their characters were being shaped, how, um, you know, it didn't feel authentic in any way. It was, um, you know, it could be humiliating at times. So she, she makes this decision to leave. Um, the other person, um, Paula Beckert, who I interviewed, she was on, um, I want to say it was Key West. And her experience was that uh, being on the show and having a camera on her all the time forced her to deal with uh, some major psychological issues that she was dealing with, alcoholism, an eating disorder. She was in a um, an abusive relationship. And she said that being on the show, seeing all that depicted, seeing how people reacted is why she was able to get her, you know, get her life together, um, oh, whether wow. or not that's really the case. But but that's how she sees it. So, you know, I think the people on the show all have, a, you know, just like people everywhere had had very different experiences um, depending on, you know, what transpired. Yeah, that's really interesting to kind of see that backstage sort of component of that mm-hmm. um, from those interviews. That's really cool that you kind of got to carve that out as well. Um, and then, of course, going on the chapter three, you kind of move on to the next part of the chronology, um, specifically looking at sort of two tropes uh, that you from what I understand, borrowed from Anita Harris, the can-do and at-risk girls, um, looking at specifically the 2000s reality production cycle, including Laguna Beach, The Hills, The City, 16 Pregnant Teen Mom. So in this you know, cycle here, what do these shows reveal about white girlhood, going back again to that you know, target audience? So this is also the moment when MTV kind of goes all in on reality programming, right? So they had, there had been a few attempts. There were shows like um, Rich Girls and Sorority Life and Made and True Life. You know, those were, those were reality based. Um, But Laguna Beach was this massive hit. 
Um, so that's kind of when MTV realizes, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep making shows like this. Um, in terms of you know being a girl, um, specifically being a white girl at this time, um, you know there was a lot happening culturally with stars like Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton. Um, you know, and and that's a whole other conversation for another day. But you know, you see, um, you know, there are these images of white women who are, you know, well-dressed and wealthy and partying and having a good time. And there's this uh, kind of dynamic of, you know, both rooting for them and thinking they're fabulous and also really enjoying seeing them fall from grace. Uh, and so, you know, all those pictures of, you know, Lindsay Lohan passed out in her car or Brittany with her shaved head, you know, taking an umbrella to a, to a car. Um, so there's, you know, I think girls were really in the spotlight at, at that time. Um, and so these shows are really interesting because if you watched Laguna beach in the Hills, um, they're all incredibly wealthy and, you know, that's implied because you see where they live, but you know, no one, no one ever says, boy, I don't ever have to worry about, you know, where I'm going to college because I am filthy rich. Right. So they're, they're all always already wealthy. They're all good looking. Um, the shows are filmed in such a way that um, it, they're, they're not caught unawares. So if you think about the real world, you know, you might catch someone waking up hungover and kind of stumbling out of a room. You know, they're going to get caught doing things that they don't necessarily want to see on camera. That does not happen on a show like Laguna Beach or The Hills. Um, they generally always know when the camera is coming. Um, that's why they look great all the time because they've, they've just gotten their hair done and they've touched up their makeup and the lighting's great. And um, they film it like it is a scripted show. So that's another thing that happens. Um, when Laguna Beach came out, a lot of people were like, wait, is this is this a reality show? What is this? You know, what is this thing I'm looking at? Um, it really looked a lot like uh, the OC, if you remember that. That was a scripted um, show on Fox that was just, you know, gorgeous uh, in terms of its its cinematography. And uh, Laguna Beach, the real OC, right? that was its original tagline, um, they mimic that. And so it's kind of this blurry line. Um, but the ultimate effect is that these girls who are doing great in life, you know, so, you know, once they leave Laguna Beach and they're on the hills, they're, they're professional girls, they're working girls, and they all have the jobs of their dreams or the internships of their dreams. And then on the weekends, they're going out to these very exclusive clubs and they're wearing clothing that's prohibitively expensive for pretty much anyone, but none of that is addressed overtly. So the idea is that these girls, um, these girls have made choices and those choices have resulted in these kind of lovely, wonderful lives that are beautiful. Um, and, you know, it's looking back on it now, it is kind of surprising just how fully white the shows were. I mean, there were no people of color anywhere to be seen uh, and nobody who was even middle class, you know, everyone was filthy rich on these shows. Um, and so that creates this sense that, you know, they've earned it. Um, they've achieved their goals. So you'll see Lauren, you know, it looks like she's trying to get this internship, but we know she's getting the internship, you know, like they're always successful. They're always doing well. So you, you kind of have that one end. Um, you know, if you're beautiful and successful, it's because you earned it. You know, you, you made that choice to be 
you know, a powerful girl. So that's kind of the, the can do girl. But then her flip side is, is the at risk girl. And she's someone who is in a bad situation because she made a bad choice. Um, so, you know, again, in, in, in both cases, it's all put on the shoulders of the girl herself. If you're really successful, it, uh, it's not because your family is rich. It's because you made it happen. And if you are living a hard life, it's because you should have made better choices. So with Teen Mom, it's the ultimate bad choice, right? These girls got pregnant. Um, they made the ultimate mistake for a young girl to do is to have a child um, too soon. Um, and so in Teen Mom, it's all about watching these girls who have failed in some ways to live up to girlhood. And the whole series are really about them trying to climb out of that. Um, you know, obviously they love their kids and it's all very heartwarming, but a lot of their narratives um, or their kind of their character trajectory is about building careers and uh taking their misfortune of being teen moms and turning it into something valuable. So, um, but not all, of course, not all the teen moms achieve that, which is, you know, part of the plot, right? The ones who fail um, are also really interesting to watch. So um, MTV kind of has these two shows on at the same time, one vision of, of white womanhood and another vision of white womanhood. Um, but again, it's, it's whiteness that is, is on display. You really don't have reality shows, um, with the exception of the real world, um, that have people of color. Um, and that will continue for a while until we get to shows like, you know, um, Washington Heights. Yeah. And in, in terms of kind of broader context, and you were talking about like with the can do girls and whatnot, you know, we did have kind of the big actresses, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears. And then going back to kind of that risk girls, this was also when Gilmore Girls came out. Yeah. You know, so there's the, I definitely see what you're saying about the these trends kind of being at large, you know, in these different types of media. Yes. Um, so that is kind of an interesting turning point there. And then, of course, you go a little further in the timeline in the next chapter. Now we're looking at 2009, 2013, mm -hmm. um, specifically now Jersey Shore and Buck Wild were, quote, successful because they entertained audiences through the spectacularization of certain identities, turning them into broad stereotypes about both Italian-Americans and the working class residents of a city in West Virginia. So can you talk about um, these now different types of identities compared to what we were just talking about. Yeah. So Jersey Shore is really interesting uh, because it comes about. So first of all, uh, recall that in 2008, we have the Great Recession. So a lot of the appeal of a show like The Hills feels kind of vulgar um, after 2008. It's, 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 you know, people aren't as excited to see images of luxury and wealth. Um, you know, when, when there's so many people who are, you know, struggling. Um, so MTV uh, wants to add some programming that um, is kind of very different from the hills in Laguna Beach. And initially, and, and I talked about this um, in the book, but, you know, initially they were going to have a show called Bridge and Tunnel, uh, which had been proposed to them um, by another production company. And that was um, some kids in Long Island. So this is where, you know, kind of the Guido focus came from. Uh, kids in Long Island, working class. Oh, I'm sorry, Staten Island, working class um, and kind of their struggles and, and, and trying to make it. So, you know, like the hills, except they don't have a lot of money and there is a lot more hardship. So it was meant to be a little more gritty and real. 
Um, MTV uh, ultimately does not go with that. They, but they like the idea. They like the idea of the Italian Americans being working class, um, the party culture. They had even had an episode a few years back on True Life, um, which is sort of their short documentary, uh, one-off documentary programs. And they had done one called I'm Going Down the Shore, which was basically about like the Jersey, people like the Jersey Shortcast, you know, partying in the summertime. Um, so, you know, they they realized they wanted to go for this. So um, they take the idea of Bridge and Tunnel, but instead of chronicling them in their homes, they decide to put them all into a house together. Um, so already that's treating them very differently than you treated the girls of the hills. No one made the girls of the hills all move into a house together. Um, and so it becomes kind of like a real world situation, except everyone's the same, right? Everyone is Italian American. So on a show like that, um, you know, on the one hand, certainly you're offered um, an opportunity to see people who are not you know, super wealthy, who are not at the top of their job game, you know, who don't have clearly defined life goals. But also it's really about um, mockery and kind of laughing. Now, granted, I think the people on Jersey Shore were very happy to participate and were in on the joke a lot. I think the situation, uh, Mike, was very uh, savvy about how he handled the show. He came up with all these catchphrases. He understood you know, this is how reality TV works. If I'm going to be a star on this show, I'm going to make everything very clear and codified, you know? So the, how do I look the way I look? It's because of GTL, Jim Tan Laundry, right? So things like that. And he's, you know, he knows exactly how well that's going to play. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's not that they're being exploited and they're victims, but the show is very much about ridicule. Um, and at the same time, it's about finding different ways to understand whiteness. So, um, you know, you have your teen moms, you have your LA girls in the hills. Now we have Italian Americans. Um, because, you know, for, for, I would say 50, 60 years, at least Italian Americans have been considered white. They've been assimilated like the Irish, um, like Jewish people. We have all, um, been kind of taken under the umbrella of whiteness. Uh, and so these shows kind of parse that back out. So um, on the one hand, you have Jersey Shore, and then they attempt to rec replicate that with another show called Buck Wild, um, which is set in West Virginia. And just as the people on Jersey Shore self-identify as guidos and kind of embrace a term that's usually derogatory, um, the Buck Wild cast really embraces the term redneck. Uh, and they kind of see it as a badge of honor. And again, um, it's this attempt to take a white identity and make it kind of specific um, and uh, not just specific, but as as something to kind of hold on to and and have pride in in some ways. So um, you see MTV kind of providing, a sense of identity to its white audiences who were, you know, maybe feeling that there was nothing interesting about them. So we, we see that conflict in early real world seasons where the white characters are sort of like, I'm boring, I'm white, you know, and not being <laughs> able to understand, you know, what it means to be white and how that impacts the world around them and how it's shaped their lives. Um, so these shows kind of offer up these other options for identification. 
or for ridicule because we're also laughing at rednecks because, you know, they're working class and they might mispronounce a word and, you know, they they don't have a swimming pool. They make it out of a dump truck and, you know, things like that. Uh, and, and also Buckwild is part of a larger trend of reality shows focused on rednecks or hillbillies. So Here Comes Honey Boo Boo was a big one. Um, but there's do- literally dozens of shows that all came out around that time. So there's also this interest in kind of the white underclass. And um, again, I think that probably has a lot to do with the Great Recession and with a sense of uh, kind of anger felt amongst working class white people and the sense that, you know, they were not only suffering financially, but that they didn't really matter um, in terms of representation. So it's, it's, it's a weird balance to be both a sense of pride, but also a source of ridicule at the same time. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I think Duck Dynasty had come out around this time, if I remember correctly, or started around this time um and you know i I feel like this kind of leads up to like you know even the pathway to how we ended up with president trump right kind of through this and response to you know obama being you know president at that time so there is certainly a larger response you know kind of like you're talking about the easy's racial discussions and mentality going on um, in addition yeah. to that, yeah, I, th- that whole cycle of reality shows about you know hillbillies and rednecks, um, a lot of the the things being said and the ideas in those shows we see popping up then not too much later uh, with the election of Trump and um, you know the 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 euphemism of economic anxiety, right? Um, we hear that a lot. Well, it's economic anxiety, which is, you know, of course, an, another way to say racism. Um, and so, yeah, I think these shows are not that they somehow created this culture, but they certainly are part of part of the culture of um, white identity, uh, being aggrieved, um, finding ways to be proud to be white. So especially on Buck Wild, I mean, they're so... Um, they're really proud of being West Virginians. Um, they are proud that they don't have a lot of money, but they're still able to really find fun ways to spend their time. Um, and they often talk about this word freedom. They're always talking about being free, being free to do things. Um, and that feels a lot better than saying, you know, the oppressive economic structures in which I live are preventing me from feeding my family, right? You can say, no, I'm free to do what I want. I love, I love living out here. And I love that, you know, I made a, a, a dump truck swimming pool to hang out in, you know, and I wouldn't want to be in a different kind of swimming pool. So yeah, I mean, you can really see these ideas percolating. Um, And for a long time, people, you know, were told that you're not supposed to talk about those things. Um, but of course, as we know, it got, it really got, uh, unleashed. Uh, it was always there, but it, it, it got expressed really openly with Trump. Yeah. It was a mirror of what was going on at that time. Um, I also thought it was interesting in the next chapter too, you kind of did something quite different from the other ones. And you looked at two quote unquote failed series on MTV, Washington Heights and Virgin Territory. So can you talk about why those weren't as successful as some of the other shows you discuss? Yeah. So um, 
Right. So the other shows were all incredibly successful. The Hills, Teen Mom, Jersey Shore, and Buck Wild was successful, but it was canceled because the main character died in a tragic accident. Um, otherwise, that show would have continued. They were they had even started filming season two. Um, so yes, yeah, so you would think, okay, MTV has found a formula. You take young people, uh, they have a very specific kind of identity, um, and the show will focus on that and will be successful. So you look at a show like Washington Heights, and it is about Dominican Americans living in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City. And unlike a lot of the other shows that we've been discussing, this was one that kind of came prepackaged to MTV. So it was pitched by the kids themselves. Um, one of the cast members um, was uh, had this idea and brought it to MTV. Um, so you know, first of all, it's so it's different in that sense, in that they're kind of doing more defining of what this is. Um, the other thing about Washington Heights is that. Unlike Jersey Shore, um, it was really difficult to kind of come up with a list of traits to associate with these kids, to give them, um, you know, catchphrases, uh, because they were they were just a lot more nuanced, you know. And again, they're not living in a in a house together. They're they're all living in their apartments. Um, it, it, it had almost a real world feel to it in that they were all trying to make it in various aspects of um the entertainment industry, acting, uh, music, art, uh, things like that. So, but ultimately uh, it, it was canceled. It had one season and it was canceled. And ultimately uh, my my rationale, the, the reason why I think it failed is because um, it was non-white kids uh, who are not stereotyped. And so there was no way to kind of stick them in a box and like, you know, talk about the shirt before the shirt or, you know, the rednecks, you know, there's no, there was no ability to pigeonhole them. And so, you know, the, the people who were watching the, the white audiences who were watching for that were disappointed. And then if you were watching to see yourself represented, um, from my research, a lot of the Dominican American community did not like the show and they felt that, you know, they, so it wasn't, it was both too much and not enough, you know, f- for the audiences. So yeah, so I feel like it really it really shows what happens when MTV tries to present um, in their reality shows to present cast members who are not stereotypes of their identity. Um, it gets it's it's just it it wasn't appealing. And then a, a similar thing happened with Virgin Territory, which um, I loved. I think I was the only person who watched it. Um, but it's this this crazy idea where they just found a bunch of teens and people in their early 20s who were virgins. And they agree to go on this show and talk about it. And then essentially, they are they are part of the show until they either lose their virginity or decide that they're going to remain a virgin. So as long as they're in that sort of weird zone of, am I going to have sex? They're on the show. And then they leave the show after that decision is made. So there's always four of them being documented, but they're, the characters come and go throughout. And um, it's also one of the few MTV reality shows that depicts people who are not white. So, you know, the real world does that. um, But there were not a lot of shows, um, you know, as we've as we've discussed. So, you know, you have um, white kids, black kids, 
uh, Latinx. Um, also, you had a uh, gay character. Um, so his virginity was discussed as well. And again, in, in all of these cases, you know, I don't think they they really were stereotyped enough to, to make it resonate and to make it interesting. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't think MTV ever plans to make another uh, another season of that. That came out probably, goodness, like seven years ago now. Um, but yeah, but it was it was really interesting take on their attempts to look at identities because they were trying to find, um, you know, people who identified as virgins and made virginity kind of their central character trait. Uh, and some of the people, yeah, some and some of the the people talked about it. Um, so one girl had a long term relationship, healthy, nice relationship with her boyfriend. They've decided they're going to have sex finally, and she's really worried. She's like, "If I'm not a virgin, what am I? Um, people are going to call me a slut if I'm not a virgin." So you know, especially for the girls, it was so uh, kind of tied in with their self worth and their belief that by being a virgin, that somehow made them you know, more, uh, morally acceptable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you hear them kind of debate those things. So I, I found virgin territory to be very interesting. Um, and you also learn a lot about, <laughs> about what young people think about, uh, romance and what makes something romantic. Um, and so <laughs> roses and, and, um, you know, candles and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, so, but that ultimately, uh, did not go past a single season. Yeah, it's interesting that one case study you just mentioned compared to like, say, the earlier ones about the at-risk girls, like Teen Mom and 16 Pregnant, like kind of pivoting those against each other, how different that is. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they seem. it seems like then, like looking at these different cycles, MTV is very much aware of like shifting with the times, you know, with these shows not trying to repeat itself too much in terms of scope, you know, um, which I think is interesting. Well, they're also, um, what they've been doing recently though, is they've been trying to reboot or reimagine some of these shows. So, you know, they briefly brought the Hills back. It was, you know, I think one season called the Hills new beginnings. Um, they rebooted, not rebooted, um, but they, uh, started a new season of Jersey Shore for Jersey Shore Family Vacation. Um, but then they also started making kind of slight replicas of those shows as well. So um, Flora Bama Shore is a great example. That was sort of their attempt to recreate the Jersey Shore idea. Um, but the identity was kind of rough, roughly Southern. I, I couldn't quite pinpoint what they were going for, but I think everyone kind of identifies as being Southern on that show. Um, yeah. And Southern and kind of ready to, ready to fight. <laughs> um, and then was uh, Siesta Key, which is in Florida, but it's basically the Hills in Florida, um, you know, rich kids. Um, and I think they had one one person of color on on that season, uh, but the difference with uh, which I thought was really interesting with Siesta Key is you do see their problems a little bit. Um, you see them struggling to get into graduate school and law school, uh, trying to find jobs after college, you know. And I think that's where the Hills really had a disconnect because you know a lot of the millennials 
who were watching that show and then graduated from college found that they couldn't get any jobs. And they certainly couldn't get a job that was related to, you know, what they truly wanted to do. Um, but on the Hills, it was just very easy. And so Siesta Key, you do see some of the characters struggling a little bit. Um, and I think that's more reflective of, you know, an awareness that this is more the reality, right, for, for young people on the job market. Um, and then there was uh, Young and Pregnant, um, which is the same producers of Teen Mom, but it's a it's basically a new cast. And I think that was a slightly interesting variation because uh, for the first time, um, they had a, a transgender cast member who was part of a couple. Um, they had uh, interracial couples. And there was definitely a more overt discussion of gender than we had in Teen Mom, like a recognition that it is the girls who are doing this, who are taking care of the kids and who have the pressure to. Whereas in Teen Mom, I think it was just taken as a given that a lot of these girls were on their own and it was all about the girl. And if the, if, if, if the father came in and out of the picture, whatever, that's part of the drama. Um, but I feel like you, you kind of hear those conversations more, um, kind of more realistic conversations in young and pregnant. So, um, MTV is definitely attempting to revive some of that a little bit. I don't, I was kind of thinking, and there's so much about these shows that are always reflective of their time. And obviously, like you said, the ability to talk about these things more openly is very much part of our present moment. But I was also thinking about the sort of recycling of old media trope. Does Netflix have anything to do with that in terms of how it's been on the rise and, you know, and bringing old shows back or reviving, you know, old shows like that? Yeah, I mean, I think Netflix is definitely part of it. You know, the fact that you can, you know, suddenly access, you know, dozens of seasons of, of other shows. Although I will say MTV has been really tight <laughs> on keeping those shows uh, wrapped up, I think. Um, but recently, I think a lot of MTV shows have ended up on Netflix now. So it'll be interesting to see what that does. For a long time, and I only know this because of, of the book and, and trying to find stuff, it was really hard to get your hands on, on old episodes of anything. Um, MTV would be very strange about what was available on its website um, and you know, you could buy the box sets of some of these, but, you know, do you really want like six seasons of Jersey Shore on DVD? Um, so I was I was trying to avoid um, stuff like that. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's certainly part of it. I think the other big factor is that we are definitely in a moment culturally where we're doing a lot of rebooting and remaking and sequels and expanding kind of pre-existing cinematic and televisual universes. So, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's less risky. If you know people like Batman um, and you already own the Batman, you know, intellectual property, right? Then you can just keep, you know, producing movies and TV series and, you know, whatever ancillary products you can produce. So I think that's sort of a, not sort of, that is a general trend that we've seen for probably the last 10 to 15 years. Um, not that, you know, we have there have always been remakes and sequels and reboots and everything else. We've always had those things, but um, it's definitely been on the rise. And that has a lot to do with, you know, it's just so expensive 
you know, to make movies, it's so expensive. There's so much risk involved. And so anything that's going to mitigate that risk is going to be employed. So, yeah. So I think MTV's um, attempts to reboot and remake things is, is absolutely part of that. But I also think you're right that these streaming platforms have made um, viewers more interested in older shows and might make older shows ripe for rebooting or remaking. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I, I definitely see what you're talking about for sure. Cause yeah, over a lot, I would agree like the last 10 years or so, but thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing all your wisdom with us here on new books and popular culture. Um, as we wrap up, let me also ask you this, what other projects do you have in the works? Oh my goodness. Well, um, actually given the conversation we just had, it's a good segue because one thing, <laughs> one thing I've been thinking a lot about is the category of genre and um, specifically in film and what value or use these categories have for us today. Um, so, you know, I've always been interested in genre and, and what it means to take a group of texts and look at them together and why that might be uh, more illuminating than looking at that text individually or looking at it within a different group. Um, but genre theory and genre studies within film, um, you know, it as we get into, you know, this trend of, you know, increasingly, you know, remade and rebooted texts, it makes, you know, I've been asking myself, what, what use is genre today? And why is it still valuable to think in terms of, you know, this is a horror movie, as opposed to say, this is another sequel of the Annabelle franchise, um, or another sequel to the Purge franchise, which I love, by the way, I love the Purge franchise, um, you know, and, and what value and critical, yeah, as a critical tool um, is, is genre today. And so, I don't know yet. Um, I am just thinking about it. Um, but it, uh, that would be where my my next project is going to go, and possibly using horror films as as the case study, because uh, the the horror genre has really, I feel like it's having a renaissance uh, right now. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to look at and talk about. Oh my gosh, that sounds so <laughs> exciting and also really <laughs> useful for how muddy, like you said genres mm -hmm. are right now especially with technology and whatnot so there'll be really useful scholarships i'm looking forward to oh. reading more of that <laughs> i hope so we'll see 10 years from now hit me up <laughs> <laughs> yes there are, a lot will change in the next 10 years but again thank you so much for talking with us we enjoyed having you today thank you so much for having me it was it was great yeah. And listeners, we appreciate you as well. Just as a reminder, this was an interview with Dr. Amanda Ann Klein, author of Millennials Killed the Video Star, MTV's Transition to Reality Programming, published by Duke University Press in 2021. This is Emily Allen. I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network. Music.